3: information.
4: Did you guys hear this story? Bob had drag back a tree behind the striker and spent a whole day trying to chop it up so that it could never be used again as cover for American soldiers.
5: That's Carrie Bales, Bob's wife of about 18 years now. She's talking to two of our producers.
4: What came to my mind when hearing these details was, where was the support? I'm thinking to myself, this makes me sad, but if it were somebody else, if it were a different guy, Bob would have seen it and had reached out and given support. You know what I mean? and have been there for his brother, like he promised to do. But what makes me really angry is that it seems like nobody saw when Bob it out.
5: In March of 2012, Robert Bales' mental health was deteriorating that back in their family's home in Seattle, Carrie was in the dark.
4: He couldn't tell me what they were doing, which had kind of been a newer thing. Like the way that he said, I can't tell you what's going on. I hadn't really paid attention to necessarily what he was going through. I honestly think I didn't have a good understanding of everything.
5: Previously on The War Within, Robert Bales left his combat outpost alone and murdered 16
6: Afghan civilians in cold blood. Nobody joins the infantry to be the bad guy.
2: I think the situation in Afghanistan was so complicated. And Robert Bales is a depiction of the complexities of this conflict.
6: This is the heart of Taliban country. I was scared to death.
7: Our rear vehicle was targeted and hit by an IED. One guy ended up losing his
6: leg below the knee. I don't think people understand. It's not a matter of if you're going to die. It's about when. If you're going to die anyway, you have to go out and try to stop that threat. I'm Mike McGinnis.
5: This is The War Within, the Robert Bales story. Before deploying to Afghanistan in December 2011, Staff Sergeant Robert Bales had already done three tours in Iraq. David Wesley served alongside him for the first and second. During those early years of the Iraq War, Bales and Wesley had some of the most
8: harrowing experiences of their lives. So I joined the Army May 5th, 2001, and Bob came in. Uh, It was shortly after I came in. We were in the same platoon, so I met Bob, and I just remember how vibrant this guy was, right? It was almost like uh, the best politician in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, An honest politician, like, he's not afraid to share his mind. You know, he was that guy. Many people enlist in the service straight from high school or college.
5: For some, the military is their first employer. Bales, on the other hand, enlisted when he was 27. Among the guys at his rank, he had a level of maturity
8: and discipline that stood out. One of the fondest memories I have of me and Bob was my girlfriend was coming over, and this guy was on uh, charge of barracks, and as my girlfriend was coming in, You know, he had said something, kind of messed up, uh, kind of fucked up to her. And I was told about it. So I was like, all right, man, I go up to his room. Bob was up there already. And, of course, I wanted to fight. There's no ifs, ands, buts about that situation. Like, you said something inappropriate to my girl. I feel like you're a soldier. I'm a soldier. You know better. We got to fight. And Bob was there to stop us. And I remember him saying, think about what you're going to lose. This guy isn't going to make it in life. You're going to give up everything for this guy. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, man, I really want to hit him, though. (laughs) And Bob's like, I know you do, man, but you can't, bro. You can't. And that was, like, really who he was as a person. Like, do the right thing. Do the right thing. It's a concept that a lot of the people who enlisted
5: after 9-11 took to heart. After all, they felt it was their patriotic duty to fight for their country. But once it was time to deploy to the Middle East, idealism clashed with the
6: harsh reality in front of them. When we went over there, we thought 50% of us weren't coming back. They had kind of a going away parade. They've got this old general up there talking and saying, "You know, you guys are dragon slayers. You know, you're gonna go over there and slay the dragon. And you know, many of you aren't coming home. And you know, that kind of thing. You know, it's when your mindset, you know, you're thinking this is gonna be like Vietnam. You know, you're gonna go over. Your buddies are all gonna die. Getting
8: ready to go. You saw the absolute worst in people." One guy threw himself down three separate flights of stairs so that he could avoid the deport. Everyone was scared. Everyone. And I remember us being in the cantonment area and we are get ready to go and this eerie, just quiet comes over everything. No one wants to talk. Nothing. And it's time to go. And once we went across that line, we knew it was game time.
6: I just remember thinking, man, I hope I die quick. Once you're being shot at, I think either you fall away or you embrace it. There were guys who were super soldiers when the bullets weren't real you know guys that are fit he screams the loudest he runs the fastest he lifts the most weight and you put him in a combat situation you would be like ah oh, that guy he's not gonna make it bob bales by most
5: accounts he was somebody that you could trust out there
8: bob was always on ready he wanted to make sure everyone was protected. i don't remember bob freezing like some of the other guys did uh, he quickly separated himself as one of those people that wanted to fight He wanted to go home.
5: As that first tour progressed, Bale started to get comfortable in combat. It wasn't
6: long before he developed the confidence of a veteran. I think you have to carry a little bit of a swagger, a little bit of an edge to yourself to be able to, hey man, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to get blown up and I'm going to move against the enemy in an elevated position, shooting me at a machine gun and I'm going to be all right. Not only am I going to be all right, we're going to kill that bastard. Bales proved himself on that tour.
5: When it came time to redeploy, he had been promoted to team leader. In that role, not only was he responsible for his group of guys, but when it came time for the squad
6: to put themselves in harm's way, he was leading the charge. You know, we're breaching the doors. Um, Team leader's the first guy in the door. Uh, Team leader's the point man. And, uh, you know, depending upon where the threat is, he's the guy that's most likely going to engage the enemy first. Bales is
5: describing the process of entering a room, which might potentially house the enemy, and then clearing or making sure it's safe. It's a vital part of combat, when that Bales and his squad ended up tackling hundreds, not thousands, of times over the course of
6: three deployments in Iraq. The idea is that you're gonna go to your point of domination, And then once we clear, we continue to move through the house. If we need to take something down, then we'll have a team clear through us and move to the following room. And uh, we just do it over and over. It becomes so uh, methodical. You've done it so many times, you don't even think about it. It just, it's like water flowing in a pitcher.
8: By that second deployment, we were ready for anything. Bob was the team leader by that point. You know, he had his own boys and we were monsters.
6: look like a freaking monster, you know? Like, and that's kind of where I'm a little worried about now, you know, of like the monster.
5: As a soldier, if you kill someone who's obviously an insurgent, that should be an unequivocal success. But that doesn't always mean you feel great about what happened. For example, take Bales' story about his first legally sanctioned kill.
6: The first one that I know... uh, was mine. Uh, we were in a really terrible spot. Um, we'd been running pretty hard for a while, and um, it was a kid. And uh, you know, it was one of those things you just wish you hadn't done. You know, you one of those things where the kid jumps off. He's shooting an AK. You know, I'm kind of behind some cover. I could have just let him shoot the AK out. You know, I remember shooting him in the leg. You know, with the yaw, of the bullet, the tumble, of the bullet doesn't kill him. And so, uh, you know, I remember coming up and shooting him in the, in the chest and then finally in the face. Um, it
5: was what it was. You know what I mean? An AK-47 will kill you no matter who's firing it. For many, that's a threat that has to be mitigated. David Wesley agrees.
8: I think it was Eisenhower that said war isn't about going and dying for your country. War is about making the other sorry bastard die for his. Right? So it's like, you you kind of adopt that mindset. And um, if you stack my life against the life of any person, and my kids depend on me, my wife depends on me, I choose me every time.
5: It's February of 2012. Staff Sergeant Robert Bales is in the middle of his fourth tour. He's 38 years old with a wife and two young kids he has every intention of making it back home. But Panjway, Afghanistan is a kinetic region where the Taliban are active. And as his tenure at BSB Belenbai drags on, Bales thinks the threat levels are only getting higher.
6: The 24th of February, we're uh, conducting a patrol uh, down south to Najibian, which was uh, one of the the villages that I went to the night I I committed my crime. And uh, we came upon a command-wired IED. The command ended up being 160 pounds of explosives. You know, it was a pretty big deal. That command wire led back to Haji Wazir's home. Bales tells documentarian Paul Palowski that he suspected that Haji Mohammed Wazir was cooperating with the Taliban. Upon detonating that IED, we get a bunch of signal intelligence that is telling us that these insurgents are moving to ambush us. So we take a defensive posture. Uh, Even though we're in a defensive posture, we become engaged by uh, machine gun fire an elevated position, the SF commander just had to give the word to light up these machine gun guys, and he wouldn't do it. Why? I think he was trying to carry out what his mission was. More aligned with counterinsurgency. Right, more in line with, you know, hearts and minds instead of, you know, breaking bones. But at the time, it made me feel like he didn't know what he was doing. It made me feel like he is soft on the Taliban.
5: Uncovering 160 pounds of explosive material just a mile from your base can be unsettling, to put it mildly. Bales was still on high alert two weeks later, as unnerving incidents kept piling up. Bombs in a nearby house, an IED that took off a soldier's leg, a huge tree trunk, and the VSP. On the night of Saturday, March 10th, at 9pm, Bales goes up to
6: the roof for guard duty, four hours before the Kandahar massacre begins. I go to uh, guard that night, it just had become dark and just shortly after we'd taken guard, I see some flashing lights to the north and to the south. The guy that was with me was uh, our platoon medic. Uh, He didn't see the lights. I thought at the time it was because he was inexperienced and he was um, not paying attention. So uh, I went over and there we had a a high-speed, high-powered scope on the roof that we could get a good picture of it um then i flipped around to the south and the south location was uh wazir's place which uh was obviously where the 160 pounds uh explosive was
9: that did seem a little i'll admit i did roll my eyes a little bit at that that's brendan vaughn the
5: writer of the gq piece who interviewed bales extensively back in 2015.
9: Full caveat here, I can't get inside Bob Bills' brain, but I think that in the case of the lights that he was seeing in the two villages around the base, was he just looking for reasons to kind of act? My strong suspicion is that he was so keyed up and he was so agitated by the events of the previous days that he was just hyper-aware of his surroundings in a way that made him not particularly
5: At 10 p.m., Bales goes to hang out with two friends, Staff Sergeant Jason McLaughlin and the man we're calling Soldier X. Together, the three of them made up the infantry leadership on the VSP. Bales catches up with them midway through watching the Denzel Washington revenge thriller, Man on Fire.
11: Soldier X recalls the evening i don't even recall like intently watching the movie i think it was we were just more conversing through the movie and whatnot i know he placed a lot of significance on it in a lot of the documentation but other than me remembering the movie i don't know if there's any significance to it as they watch man on fire bales mclaughlin and soldier x are drinking
5: liquor alcohol is expressly forbidden for soldiers on deployments but that rule isn't always enforced and in this case It's the squad leaders who
11: are breaking it. It was accessible to everybody. And not that everybody was drinking every day or drinking heavily when they drank, but it was definitely accessible. Wearing the armpit of Afghanistan a lot of ways and a nightcap every once in a while with your buddies is okay.
5: Did you feel that your peers uh, had an issue with drinking to get drunk?
11: No, definitely not. I consumed alcohol on probably three or four occasions while over there. It was never a drink to get drunk thing. It was very similar to breaking some bread. Maybe we talk about this or let's figure this out and we'll break some bread together. Do you remember how much everybody drank that night? It was something so trivial and not that much that we weren't wasted by any means.
6: You know, this is always the thing, like how much was it? You know, it was a, a 21 ounce Pepsi bottle full of whiskey and three guys over two and a half hours, you know, we worked it out to like seven drinks per guy.
5: So all this is happening, you know, right before he decides to leave, you know, the installation. Did Bales ever mention that he would go and do something uh, like he did?
11: My conversation was just about the pulse of the team and he expressed frustrations with the kid getting blown up, but it was more of a manner of like breaking bread and the three of us trying to hash out problems. But my reflection was never any inclination that he was gonna go out and want to cause a whole bunch of harm. I do think I would remember it had he expressed anything about him wanting to go out.
5: After the movie ends, the group calls it a night. But Robert Bales apparently can't sleep. According to him, he hasn't gotten a good night's rest in a while.
6: I didn't sleep Wednesday night. I really I tried to lay down Thursday. I really didn't lay down Thursday. I think I, maybe I slept an hour on Friday. So from Wednesday until after I'd uh, committed my crime, I hadn't slept more than three hours. That Saturday, I try to go to bed. I go in, I take some sleeping pills. Can't go to sleep. Bales has a bad feeling and he
5: can't shake it. So at around 1130, he wakes up Clayton Blackshear, a special forces sergeant. Bales'
6: squad was in Afghanistan to support the SF. So this was clearly his superior. I go see the guy that uh, is responsible for the VSP and I pretty much tell him, I'm like, hey man, we need to go do something. You know, this is some bogus stuff. And uh, he said, basically, you know, mind your own lane. This isn't your business, go to sleep. You know, you need to take care of your guys and worry about your lane. This is our lane, screw you. He didn't say screw me, but that was the way I took it. Bales is adamant. He's
5: seen the flashing lights from the nearby villages it's just not sitting right
6: so I leave I go back I sit in my chew for a while and I'm like you know it's closing in you know it continues to get worse and worse every day you know it's the anticipation of death probably way worse than the death itself it's terrible
11: so when you uh kind of made that decision? Was it originally to observe? What was it? What was kind of going? What did you you hope to do? I hope
6: to get out there, find guys who weren't planning IEDs, shoot them and come back. Maybe I'm a little naive. I think I can make a difference.
5: According to the military's internal investigation, at around 1 a.m. Sunday, March 11th, Staff Sergeant Bales climbed over the barbed wire that separated the VSP from its surroundings. As the story goes, he wasn't wearing any body armor. All alone, in the pitch black, he walked north to the impoverished village of Alacozai.
6: Here's Bales' chilling description of what happened next. When I got out there, I saw the compound. I go in, I start clearing room to room like I would clear, you know, like I've cleared thousands and thousands of times. Um, you know, a lot of women and kids are running around, going crazy. You know, it's not really what I'm looking for. I go out, I come around the other side, and I pull this guy out. And uh, even the prosecution attest to, you know, I'm asking for the Talib. As Bales tells Paul,
5: his intention was to get intel on the Taliban. It wasn't long before that plan devolved.
6: I grab the first guy I see, and uh, I'm kind of working this guy over. I'm kind of beating him. At this point, are you angry or are you... I, I'm angry, but I, in my mind, I'm trying to find the IEDs because it's clear this compound has been used in prior engagements to either house or support terrorist activity. In my mind, at this point, this is undeniable. I know that this is a bad place. You have your battle rail. All I had was my helmet, my rifle, and my pistol. I only had one magazine for my rifle and one for my pistol. So uh, I end up beating this dude a little bit. And, uh, I'm just trying to find something. And, uh, this dog comes running up from my left. And, uh, turn and I shoot the dog. You don't keep a dog if you're starving. You keep a dog as a warning system if you're a Taliban, right? So, this little girl comes running up and, uh, She's screaming, and I, uh, I turn and I just, I shoot her. It's an instinct. Um, I thought it was another dog at the time. And uh, when I recognized that it was a girl that, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, it killed me, man. I mean, I, I nobody wants to hurt a kid, you know? <sighs> I immediately turn and uh, I killed the guy. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really know a whole lot about what happens next in that northern village. It was not my intent to hurt women and children. Uh, not my intent. With the help of two journalists,
5: Leila Ahmadzai and Mirwais Atal, our production secured interviews with six Afghan civilians whose lives were forever changed by Robert Bales' actions that night. They were the survivors. Their commentary has been translated from their native Pashto. Haji Mohammed Naeem and Samiullah are the patriarchs of the two families Bales encountered in Alakoza. Here's Haji
12: Naeem. That night, the Americans came at 2 a.m. and killed people in a house. After that, the women of Samyula's family came to our house. She told me that the Americans came and shot her husband and daughters. At this time, the Americans threw themselves over the wall into our house and come to me. I had left the room at that time and was standing outside. They chose their laser weapon and shot at me. You might have noticed that Haji
5: Naeem said Americans, not American. That's not a bad translation. It's what he said.
0: Do
6: you have a family relationship with Samiula? or are your houses next to each other?
12: Our houses are next to each other. When the Americans came, Samiula's family all entered our house out of fear. The American soldiers stood at the gate of the room and shot all of the people inside the room.
7: Did they shoot you above your leg or somewhere else?
12: No, they shot above my neck and the bullet hit my jaw. After that, I fell and I was not aware of myself. I was unconscious for a long time.
5: By the time Bob Bales leaves Alacoza, he shot at least 10 people. The exact number is still subject to debate. Bales' charge sheet would later indicate that he had killed four this village. Bale somehow re-enters the VSP undetected. He goes to the room that he shares with Staff Sergeant Jason McLaughlin.
6: I go in and I see uh, my friend and I, I'm like, hey man, I just killed some military-aged males up in Alkozai. I'm going to Najibian to finish it. I was like, take care of my wife and kids. And uh, he didn't believe me. And I said, no man, seriously, take care of my wife and kids. And, uh, I rolled out.
5: McLaughlin declined to be interviewed for the podcast. His response to our request was two words. Fuck off.
6: I realize, you know, we're dead. Like, I figure I have to finish
5: it. Bales had come back from the sight of the flashing lights he had seen to the north. Now, he
6: turned his attention to the lights from the south. I, uh, get, I think it was three magazines... 320 grenade launcher, grenade belt, a couple more uh, pistol mags.
5: Newly armed, Bales leaves the VSP and heads south to Najibian. He takes the main road, which, SF Captain Danny Fields points out, is very dangerous.
7: I think he's incredibly lucky. I'm kind of blown away that he did not step on an IED. I think virtually every time we did a dismounted patrol, we found an IED.
5: Bale's first stop is the home of Mohammed Dawood, another person who Bales perceives as a threat.
6: I go to the first uh, house on the way, and we had pulled a Lee Enfield sniper rifle out of this house. In my mind, at that time, I think I was on autopilot. Um, you know, I was trying to, in my mind, stop the people that were trying to kill us. I go in, I drag the guy out away from his family, and I kill him. We leave his sons had been responsible for shooting another American
5: earlier. One of those sons was Hikmatullah Dawood, although he probably wasn't who Bales was referring to. Hikmatullah was nine at the time.
3: Robert
12: Bales entered the house at
3: night.
12: The gate of our house was weak, it was a little broken. When he entered the house, he first took my father's hand. He said in English, Taliban, Taliban. We did not understand. We do not know our Pashto properly, let alone understand English. He took my father to the front door of the room and shot him above his head. When he shot my father, he then came to me and knocked me down. Another brother of mine was also there, who was four months old at the time. Robert Bales held a gun over his head and asked us where the Taliban were. Now think about what we should say to this.
5: Bales continues on to Haji Wazir's compound, the place they had dug up IEDs two weeks before.
6: I end up going to the second place, where we pulled 160 pounds of explosives out. Here comes this dog. Dog comes running at me, I shoot the dog. There's one room with a light, it's got a kerosene lantern in it. As I approach the room, I go in too deep and I'm exposed from behind. I get smashed over my back left-hand side with a shovel. So I reach back and I grab the guy that hit me in the back and I flip him uh, into the room. And I basically spray the room. I put my weapon on burst and I empty the magazine. Kerosene lantern turns over. Some of the blankets catch on fire. Um, There's a bunch of dead people in the room. Uh, Yes, I realized that there were women and children in that room. And as I'm leaving, um, there's an elderly lady who surprises me around the corner. Um, I shoot her with a pistol and uh, she grabs onto me. And I'm just trying to get her off of me. I'm trying to push her off of me. And as I push her down, you know, I'm stomping her to get her off me. And uh, that's kind of when I think I came back to myself, if you will. You know, the autopilot kicks off. I realize, holy shit, you just killed this elderly woman.
5: Bales killed 11 members of Haji Wazir's family. We don't have any eyewitness accounts from the Afghans here. There were no survivors.
6: So, uh, I didn't know what to do at that point, you know, like, What do I do? So, I pick up the elderly woman and I take her back in with her family. And the room's now on fire. So I put her with her family and uh, I put the gun in my mouth and uh, I just couldn't do it. I was too weak to do it. I really just wanted to uh, you know, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't know what I really just uh, want to see my kids again.
10: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
5: As Robert Bales is making his way through Naja back at the VSP, people are starting to realize that there's a problem. The rumor was that at 2.30 a.m., an Afghan guard named Tasha Ali noticed an American soldier walk off the base. Ali would later tell the U.S. Army that he didn't shoot at the American because he was afraid of the repercussions. So instead, he ran this intel up his chain of command until the news got to Danny Fields.
7: So I got the knock on the door at 3 a.m., didn't really think anything of it, went to the door, and he said, hey, um, the guard at the gate says that somebody left the base, to which... I was very skeptical that that was true. So I said, all right, go grab an interpreter, meet me at the front gate. We're going to talk to this guy. So speaking to the gate guard, you know, I remember him saying something to the effect of an American left. And then an American came back or he said somebody came back. So very first thing I did, I woke up my team sergeant. And I said, hey, let's get a uh, 100% accountability of the base. So I need to know that everyone's here. And I need to know that there's not somebody here that shouldn't be here. Because I've, I've heard that somebody left and maybe somebody came back.
5: As Captain Field spearheaded the search for a missing soldier, Private James Alexander did as he was told.
9: I get woken up very early in the morning. And it's like, hey, we need to do 100% accountability walks over and he starts looking for people, like who is here and who isn't. Alexander refers to
5: Soldier X here by name. We bleep that out.
9: Doesn't do a head count, doesn't read off a clipboard, right, or any of that stuff. He's just like looking to see who is there and who isn't. After a minute or two of like confusing rhetoric of like, hey, who's here? Okay, you're here. He turns the light off and tells us to go back to bed. Maybe 15 seconds later, Comes back in and is like, everybody get up, go to your battle station, someone is missing. And we're like, holy shit, get dressed as fast as we can.
5: Nobody at the VSP was prepared for a scenario like this. In the heat of the moment, facts were unclear.
7: Shortly after that, I can't remember exactly how much time after that, I learned that there was somebody missing, and that missing person was Robert Bales. My immediate thought was, well, this makes no sense to me. Why would he not be here? Why, if this guard is being truthful, why would Bales have left the base? I kind of
9: thought like, maybe Bales got kidnapped. Like the Taliban came in, drug him off, and like they're they're now in a village. There's just so many moving parts, so many things happening. And also my perspective is, oh my God, like what is going on? Are we being
7: overrun? Am I about to get kidnapped? We're starting to ask a lot of questions on the base. Has anybody seen him leave? Does anybody know what's going on? Shortly after that, we got a phone call back from Zangabad.
5: Zangabad's a big American base nearby with a medical center.
7: And Zangabad said, hey, we just had some people brought in who have gunshot wounds. They said that they were shot um, in their house. Do you know anything about this? At this point, this is when we started to piece things together, right? We're like, all right, something bad is happening. Um, It's clearly with Bales, because he's not here. We're getting reports of people being shot in an area where he seems to be. So something strange is happening.
5: As soon as Robert Bales leaves Haji Wazir's burning house, he can tell that the United States military is looking for him.
6: I go back outside and now I'm freezing. I go back and I get a, uh, a door cover and I uh, put the door cover around me and I start to make my way back to the VSP. As I'm making my way back to the VSP, these guys are shooting up flares.
9: Paulo actually spots him on his AWS system, which is a targeting camera computer thing. He spots him in his uh, in this marshmallow
7: coat, which is that big poofy coat, wearing like a cape. And that's when they like stack up a team outside to go get him. I told my team sergeant, hey, put together a small interdiction team to get ready to receive him and and interdict him on his way, whether he's coming back to us or he's bypassing us, we're gonna stop him. Get the non-lethal shotgun rounds, but do what you have to to protect yourself, because we don't know what state of mind he's in, right? After suspicion that Bales was kidnapped, or worse, he's found walking
5: alone back to the VSP. Fields taps Jason McLaughlin and Soldier X to receive Bales at the entrance, his drinking buddies from six hours
11: before. So we go outside the gate a little ways, and he comes running back, and I'm thinking, like, I don't know where this dude's mind's at. I don't know what the hell he's doing. He's out there hurting people, and I was pissed. And I'm thinking, like, I might have to shoot this guy. I might have to kill my platoon sergeant.
6: So uh, I come back to the VSP, and uh, they, you know, they got their guns drawn on me. You know, my friends, my family, they got their guns drawn on me. Sergeant
9: Bales is absolutely covered in blood. And I immediately start rationalizing like the human that I am. Okay, Bales has killed his captors. He has broken free of his restraints and he made his way back and he's a hero and he's gonna win all these medals for what he's done.
11: We put him in the medical shed as like a little detention area and put guards on him.
7: At some point I get a call on the radio, hey, we've got him, he's secure and you know this is an image i'll never forget for my life the door opens up and it's it's bales he's in you know a green t-shirt he's in his acu pants boots and he's just covered in blood he's got blood all over him still not knowing what's happened at this point i say something to the effect of bales what the fuck just happened he says nothing i ask him again he says i'm sorry i'm sorry he sits down on the cot puts his hand in his head and says, I'm sorry, I let you down, I'm sorry. And I said, Bales, what the fuck happened? And it was kind of creepy, but he looked up and he said, I think I need a lawyer. And that's when things kind of changed, right? Everything sort of changed when he said that.
5: Soon after Robert Bales asked for a lawyer, he's escorted into a helicopter and flown off the VSP. About 12 hours later, his wife, Carrie, is doing Sunday morning errands in Seattle.
4: I loved to go grocery shopping. I remember that day I was picking up ribs for my parents because they were going to have a barbecue. And I called them to say, hey, I've got this. They're, they're on sale. How many do you want? Or something like that. And my dad said, oh, yeah, I get those. And hey, did you see the news about that 38-year-old staff sergeant that shot up the people in Afghanistan? And, I remember it like, you know, time almost stands still when he said, 38-year-old staff sergeant, right? And I remember finishing my shopping and I probably spent $200 on food that we never got to eat. I took the kids home and put them down for a nap and kind of waited for whatever was gonna be next because I I did have a feeling that it was Bob. And then I remember the next feeling was relief because I got a phone call and not a knock at the door because a phone call meant Bob was alive and I'd be able to talk to him again and he, he didn't die over there. So if I would gotten a knock at the door, then it would have meant that it was over. You know what I mean? I remember getting the phone call and them saying, we'll probably be there in about an hour, we'll tell you what's going on. And I'm, all I wanted to know is, is Bob safe? And what's going on? And they said they would tell me when they got there. At that time, I asked my parents, Can you stay with me until the army people come. So I remember sitting at our kitchen table, it was me and my parents at one end, army people came in, there was, I vaguely remember them. there was a woman that was a civilian or in civilian clothes, maybe one or two other army men in their uniforms, right? And I only vaguely remember what they told me. My question was, when do I get to talk to him? When can I talk to him? When can I talk to my husband? And they said they didn't know, but they told me that they, for our safety, that they recommended that we packed up an overnight bag and move on to post because they didn't know when they would be releasing his name. The military packed up our house for us and moved all of our things. They kind of knew that there would be a big media thing, and so that night, we went and we stayed in a hotel.
5: When you marry a soldier, in many ways you're marrying the military. But Carrie could never have fathomed this scenario when she said her vows. Without any warning, her husband had been detained by the nation that he had sworn to serve.
6: So, you know, this is going to sound kind of crazy. But I sit back and I ask, how did I get to where I'm at? Like, how did I get from, you know, being the good guy? Uh you know being the leader of of my group i think i was a very good soldier to being in prison for the rest of my life how did i go from one to the other and i i don't know the answer to that
4: we were in the hotel that first night and it was probably about midnight i got to call my cell phone and it was bob and the first thing out of his mouth was, you need to run. Something really bad has happened. You need to run as far away from me as you can. Get away, get safe. get the kids safe. Get away. There were very few times when I've seen or heard my husband cry, but we both cried at the end of that phone call because we didn't know what was next. We didn't know what
6: was going to happen. Coming up on The War Within.
9: Bail got taken away in a helicopter, but we had to essentially survive.
6: Her flew me out of uh, Panjway, and then I ended up here in Leavenworth, Kansas. And then uh, from there, I meet John Henry
10: Brown for the first time. It just seemed fundamentally unfair to me that someone who we created had four deployments should be treated the way he was being treated. So I was going to put the war on trial.
4: Me and my kids definitely saw the media circus. It was surreal. It was like, this isn't happening to me. It was clear that the Afghan
2: government had lost complete control of the situation. We were on a fact-finding mission, trying to figure out what the truth was.
5: The War Within, The Robert Bales Story, is a production of Bungalow Media and Entertainment, Checkpoint Productions, and Mosquito Park Pictures, in partnership with iHeart Podcasts. The series was created by executive producers Paul Pulowski and David Sheck. Executive producers for Bungalow Media and Entertainment are Robert Friedman and Mike Powers. The podcast was written and produced by Max Nelson and hosted by me, Mike McGinnis. Editing was done by Anna Hoverman. Sound design and mix by John Gardner. Teddy Gannon was an archival producer. Leila Ahmadzai was an associate producer. And Peter Solotaroff was production assistant. Special thanks to Liz Yale Marsh, Nicole Rubin, Marcy Barkin, Zach Burpee, and Mirwais Atal, as well as all of the people who were interviewed for the podcast. Listen and subscribe to The War Within on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.